I'm going to open my Bible here to Galatians uh, chapter 4. <clears throat> We're continuing our, our study in Galatians 4. Uh, I'm going to just review a couple of verses that Pastor Lee spoke about last week, verses 6 and 7 of Galatians chapter 4. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The law and legalism is for slaves. It's for hired hands and hourly workers, those that do piecework. But in Christ, we are heirs, heirs of God. As sons, we're co-owners of the family business. Wait till you reach heaven. It'll blow your mind when you see a shingle on the doorway that says, God and sons. Just as Peter, or as Pastor Lee said last week, in Christ, we're forgiven, redeemed, adopted, and made co-heirs. The Spirit puts us on the intimate terms with God. For all eternity, it's going to be Sons of God. God and sons proprietorship. Paul applies this argument. Why do you want to go back into bondage into a second childhood? He's saying, leave the ABCs of preschool and enjoy the full inheritance that you have in Christ. We move ahead tonight with verse 8. But then indeed... When you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. Everyone has a spiritual answer for who we are. How mankind is different from the other species or what man's ultimate purpose is. Even a reason to live each day and what happens after we die. Everyone has an answer that they believe. And Paul says, we serve these ideas or philosophies or beliefs every day. Those who aren't vested in God and sons, who don't yet know the Lord, they live their lives as best they can by those beliefs. <clears throat> Verse 9, <clears throat> But now, <clears throat> after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly arguments or elements to which, <clears throat> to which you desire again to be in bondage? Paul is connecting two distinctly different issues here in verse 9. In the first part of the verse, he's referring to the relationship all true believers have with our Creator. It's not just us knowing or believing facts and information about God or putting our faith into that knowledge. Our faith is about a two-way personal relationship with the living God through the actual indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit. You have known God, or rather, are known by God, Paul said. Secondly, Paul is referring to the bondage our old, former beliefs kept us in as we attempted day by day to live up to their demands. Paul says, uh, 
in the last part of the verse. He says, How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? The old law, whether it was Mosaic law of the Old Testament or society's social, legal, and ethics, those laws, they expected our obedience based solely on our own individual and moral character and strength. Some have called it pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Paul mentions just a few examples in verse 10. He says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. So keeping the law, whether it's just the observing of special days or events, was demanded without any outside help or assistance. All religions, whether it's the Old Testament Judaic law or the pagan religions, they all chain us to impossible codes and demanding ceremonies. Grace changed everything. The grace of God was a breath of fresh air, a cup of ice water on a hot summer day. Paul says, why, why turn back to the beggarlies? In all religions, we're on our own. We're judged by perfection, always falling short or making excuses, bending the rules or finding loopholes, or at least some of us, we compare ourselves with others who we don't think are doing as well as we are. Religion straps us to a never-ending cycle of measuring up. In verse 11, Paul says, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. There's a real fear in Paul's life, a real concern that he has. He's labored to bring the gospel of grace, a grace of, a gospel of, of freedom from the unattainable legal standards. The gospel of grace is the gospel that evokes the helping presence of the Holy Spirit. The gospel of grace places us in a position where we are justified, righteous before God Almighty. It includes a change of heart that's born into our very beings, giving us a new nature. Paul worries that the legalism of the Galatians will unravel everything grace had weaved together in their lives. His work among them, he says, will be in vain. He says in verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Brethren, I urge or I beseech you. This is the appeal of a loving spiritual servant, a concerned father addressing his spiritual children. I became as one of you when I first preached to you, writes Paul. Now become as I am and be true to Christ. Verse 13. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel, a messenger, a messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. Many times those 
with a physical infirmity will be considered unworthy to lead or be, to be listened to. In fact, YFC leaders kept my son Don back behind the scenes for several years because they believed that healthy athletic high school students wouldn't want to follow or listen to someone who was sitting in a wheelchair. Verse 15. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He has reminded them that it was through some physical affliction that he first came to them and that they treated him like a true messenger from God. Now, though, they're treating him like an enemy because he's telling them the truth. Well, we know from statements such as this that Paul ministered on these missionary trips while he suffered an undisclosed physical affliction. Some scholars have determined that this affliction may have been related to his eyesight because of his need for a secretary or a scribe and because of his statement here where he said, would, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. We see this as a clue as to the nature of Paul's illness. It was probably some sort of unsightly, infectious eye disease. So why didn't Paul heal himself? Many readers think of Paul as a miracle worker. They think of this because of all the miraculous events that took place during his ministry. Why didn't Paul heal himself? His miracles are listed in the book of Acts. I'm going to remind you of them as we ask this question. Acts chapter 13, at Paul's words, God struck Elimus, the sorcerer blind, for seeking to turn the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, away from the faith. In Acts 14, in Lystra, Paul observed a man crippled from birth. He saw his faith and said, stand up straight on your feet. And it says there, and he leaped and walked. Acts 16, out of annoyance and irritation, I like this miracle, Paul turned to the spirit possessing the slave girl and commanded it in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Again it says, and he came out that very hour. Acts chapter 20, the young man named Eutychus fell asleep. He fell out of a third story window. and He died during Paul's Bible study. Must have been a long one. It says, Paul went down and fell on him, and he brought him back to life. It says there at the end, and they brought the young man, uh, the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Acts 28 it says, Paul, gathering a bundle of sticks, had a viper, a poisonous viper, fastened on his hand, but he shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. Then later in that same chapter, the father of, of Publius, the estate owner, lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he had laid his hands on him, and he healed him. And I've saved the most interesting for last. It's back in chapter 19 of Acts, and I'm going to read it, uh, two verses. 
Acts 19, 11, and 12. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. In truth, Paul couldn't even heal himself of his affliction. You see, healing isn't in the hand or the garment or the desire of the person God uses. As we saw in this last example in Acts 19, healing is in the purpose and the will of God Himself. Acts 19.11 started, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul didn't come to Galatia as a miracle worker. He came as a preacher of the gospel of grace. These Judaizers have come to destroy Paul's ministry in the lives of these people. Paul says in verse 17, They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. Paul is saying, Your false teachers make a big show of their love for you. They court you. But their motives are not pure. They want to use you to show off their spiritual conquests. Paul points this out again in Galatians chapter 6, verse 13. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. These false teachers pampered rather than pastored. Paul boldly told the truth. They were seeking to build a following. Verse 18. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I said before that, Paul appealed to them as a concerned father addressing his spiritual children. But in verse 19, if you look at that again, you'll see that Paul seems to be suffering the pain and travails of a loving spiritual mother who is giving birth to them. Paul had a passion to do more than for these people than just plant the seed in their hearts. He wanted to see every believer reach maturity and live out every day the character of Jesus himself. His soul travailed. He cramped with concern to see all believers grow in Christ. Verse 20, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. I'm struggling, he says. He had a deep desire to be there with them so that he could look them in the eye and speak gently, though firmly, concerning his grave concerns for their spiritual welfare. Now here's an interesting statement in verse 21. Tell me, he says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? It's as though they'd gone spiritually deaf. Paul wants them to hear the whole issues concerning the law. He wants them to hear the rest of the story. 
Well, let me use a mixed metaphor and say that these Judaizers had blinded them to the truth of the gospel of grace. So Paul is going to remind them of the crowd that they're choosing to be a part of. He's going to use an Old Testament story to teach a New Testament truth. Paul uses the story of Abraham's two sons, found in Genesis 16 and 21, to show that the new covenant of grace has superseded the old covenant of law. Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite Bible teachers, gives us his chart to illustrate, illustrate the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant of law is symbolized by Hagar, the slave girl. The new covenant of grace symbolized by Sarah, the free woman. Ishmael symbolizes the old covenant. He's a son born after the flesh. Isaac, a son born miraculously by God's promise, is an illustration of the new covenant. The old covenant represents Jerusalem in Paul's day, still in spiritual and political bondage. But the new covenant represents the heavenly Jerusalem, which is free and glorious. Paul begins his lesson in verse 22. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he, was, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Here's how Paul tells the story. Sarah had a son through promise. Isaac, he was the miracle baby. He was God's work from start to finish just like our salvation is. Whereas Ishmael was born according to the flesh. The flesh, remember? Flesh is me. Flesh is my efforts, my ingenuity, my ability, just like our efforts under legalism. Paul reminds us that this true historical event is also a lesson for today. He says in verse 24, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Hagar represents the legal code given to Moses on Mount Sinai, which was later associated with another mountain. Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount, there in the middle of Jerusalem. It is the whole system of relating to God that Paul opposes here in Galatia. Righteousness that depends on law and works and the flesh. They are, it's epitomized by Hagar and Ishmael. But, Paul says in verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. The Jerusalem above is heaven. This is where the power originated that opened Sarah's womb. It's also the source of our salvation. Heaven bestows favor freely by grace through faith 
in the Spirit's power. That's exactly how we relate to God under the new covenant. As believers, we are children of promise like Isaac, and therefore children of liberty, as Paul will tell us later in verse 31. You see, God had promised Abraham a son long before Ishmael was born. Ishmael was added like the law. We see this back in in, uh, Galatians 3. Uh, Pastor Lee talked about it. Galatians 3.19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Let me say again. Ishmael was a son of the flesh, a slave's son. The old covenant of law was never God's final plan for Israel. It was added, like Ishmael was, and brought bondage and sorrow, like Ishmael did. While we're making this point, let me remind you of what my brother pointed out last week, what Paul said in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. The covenant of grace came first. Verse 17. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is is no longer of promise. I love this last part. But God gave it to Abraham. By promise. The faith, grace, covenant that God made with Abraham was firmly entrenched before the law came along. The Mosaic law was never intended to take the place of grace, not even for a New York minute. Law and grace, works and faith are mutually exclusive. That's why God's commandment to Abraham was to cast out Ishmael and Hagar. Law and grace, faith and works, promise and commandment can never live in the same household. The Judaizers in Galatia wanted to invite Hagar and Ishmael back into the family again. Next, Paul refers to Isaiah 54.1 and applies this verse to the church. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Just as Sarah was barren and had to wait for many years for her son, so the Jews had to wait many years before God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled on the cross. Isaiah, in this This verse is describing the joy of Jerusalem after the return from, from the exile in Babylon. But Paul sees a deeper meaning here. He sees joy in the church in spite of its persecution and suffering. Verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he... But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. 
That's what these Judaizers are doing. They're persecuting the children of promise. Abraham's excursion in the flesh, in the true story in the Old Testament, resulted in great friction in the home. Hagar needled Sarah constantly. It's just mentioned in Genesis 16.3. So Abraham went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Well, Sarah was a... Was a um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, she didn't jump right away. But it was Ishmael bullying Isaac. That was about all that Sarah could take. So we see clear up in Genesis 21, verse 9. When Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing at Isaac, that was the end of the line for them. You see, those who remain under the law always put the same demands on others and they scoff at those who don't seem to perform. It's like the old saying, misery loves company. The danger Paul saw in Galatia is that it's still with us today. Our flesh loves and craves excitement, even religious excitement. And we feel so gratified when we can keep even a few of the religious laws. But there can be no mixture of law and grace. Verse 30 says, Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? And Paul here quotes the Lord with Sarah's ultimatum. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Isn't it interesting that Abraham was not able to do this on his own? It took the concerns of Sarah to bring him to his senses. That sounds familiar to any of you guys? One, commu- one commentary actually gives the blame, the onus to Sarah. He quoted, I'm quoting him. Sarah was apprehensive lest Ishmael should contr- contrive to disinherit Isaac an act of unbelief into which she was manifestly betrayed by her maternal fears and womanly jealousy. Whoa, where is that guy coming from? In truth, Abraham felt so obligated to Ishmael and Hagar, he felt duty-bound to his acts of unbelief, perhaps desiring to have both sons share in the blessings to have his cake and eat it too? Well, we find the story in Genesis 21, verse 11. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of Ishmael being his son. Unlike the commentary I just quoted, Scripture would suggest that it was Abraham who was being betrayed by his parental fears and his lack of faith. Verse 12 of Genesis 21. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Well, Abraham, 
he lacked faith, thinking that if he kicked Ishmael and Hagar out, that he didn't know what could happen. He was thinking that God couldn't take care of Ishmael and Hagar. Well, we read in verse 13, God says, Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. Here in this passage in Galatians, Paul is not only commending this action, but saying it was the only thing to do. And it's still the only thing to do. Toss out the law. Hang on to grace. Verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We close chapter 4 with the final statement, the bottom line as Paul sees it. We're children of the free. We're children of the promise. But we too have a choice. Either I'm a new covenant person who walks by faith, or I'm wedded to the law that, and I end up depending on me. Only me and my flesh. We all need to shift gears from law and human achievement to grace, salvation and victory at Christ's expense alone. You see, it's all about Christian liberty. So shift gear, Paul says, and stand fast. Paul continues his thoughts in chapter 5. As he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't waver. Don't be moved, not even for a moment, by the temptation to think that you can please God with your own puny efforts. It's an illusion of grandeur to think we can please the gods. It's been said that the problem with the Greek and Roman gods is that they were made too human. The problem with me thinking that we can keep the law, that I can keep the standard of a holy God, is that I'm either believing myself to be too divine or I'm not understanding how righteous is our God. Paul will get into this idea in verse 3. So let me go there before we look at verse 2. Verse 3. Skip up to there with me. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor or obligated to keep the whole law. See, that's the rest of the story. We are all capable of keeping some of the law, some of the time. After all, mankind was created in God's image. But God is a holy God of righteousness. He demands nothing less than the innocence that He created mankind with. We can't reach high enough or jump far enough to meet God's demands of righteousness. Unless... Like the Romans and Greeks, we also lower him, 
like they did with their gods. And what good did it do them? It made a mockery out of heaven. Their gods were fickle and could change on a whim. They could become selfish, devious and spiteful, even capricious and unpredictable, however the winds were blowing. Our God, the Old and New Testament God, is a gracious God, dependable, unwavering in His faithfulness to His children. James tells us this in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Our God is a faithful, righteous God of mercy and comfort. We read in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And then in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, Therefore the Lord will wait that He may be gracious to you. And therefore He will be exalted that He may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. Our God, the God of the Scriptures, is not a creation of our own needs or imagination like the gods from Rome and Greece. We serve a God of gracious mercy and justice. A righteous God who balanced love and grace with accountability in Jesus on the cross. Well, let's go back to verse 2 and talk about that before we move on. Verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. What Paul is condemning is the theology of circumcision. Namely, the theology that makes works absolutely necessary for salvation. It's also a theology that requires some conformity to external standards like circumcision as a mark of spirituality. If a man believes so strongly that human works such as circumcision are that important to his salvation, as well as his relationship to God, then Paul truly questions his salvation. Like Dr. Walbert, one of my favorite Bible scholars, puts it, you have demonstrated that you had not exercised saving faith in Christ. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Oh, fallen from grace. Well, simply put, fallen from grace is turning, is that turning to the law ruins grace. It changes our relationship to the Lord from gratitude to obligation. I like how Dr. Gabeline says it. He's a great scholar. He says, to fall into the practice of circumcision is to lose, listen closely, to lose the value of Christ's death, both for salvation 
and for living the Christian life. The phrase, you've fallen from grace, I just don't think it can mean that if a Christian, if a Christian sins, he falls from grace and loses his salvation. In fact, there's a sense in which to sin is to fall into grace if one is repentant. Paul said it in Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So to fall from grace, as seen in the context here in Galatians, is to fall into legalism. Or to put it another way, to choose legalism is to relinquish, relinquish grace as the principle by which one desires to be related to God. Paul begins closing this argument with this wonderful promise about victory and ultimately about heaven. He calls it the hope of righteousness. Verse 5, For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. He reminds us once again, daily victorious living, heaven and eternal life come by faith alone. Verse 6, our last verse we'll look at tonight. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Well, why is this true? First, it's because as Paul notes here, it all is working through love. The love of Jesus on the cross. The love of God with His promise to Abraham. It's also true because human works in and of themselves don't really help us or hinder us as far as salvation is concerned. In fact, Jesus told us about the only works that we can do that makes a difference to God. He said it in John chapter 6, verse 29. He's answering people that say, well then, what can we do to work for God? This is the work of God, Jesus said that you believe in Him who sent you. That you believe that you have faith. Well, what Paul has been talking about in Galatians is belief or faith. Misdirected belief. Faith or belief that my works can save me and faith that my works can earn God's blessings. Paul says, no. Don't fall from grace into that trap. It takes away your liberty and it binds you to the chain gang of struggle and endless toil. Well, let me close tonight with a statement from our friend Sandy Adams. He says this, Legalism is the storm that rocks the boat of faith. It's the mentality that it's up to me to either obtain or maintain a right standing with God. I try to prove that I'm deserving of God's blessing and, and, and His favor by what I do. At times the rules I try to keep are God's. At other times they're mine. And they come also from church folk. 
but the idea is the same. Our work proves our worthiness. The gospel of grace teaches us just the opposite. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. On our own, the most obedient among us are unworthy. But God, oh, I love that. But God extends grace. On the cross, Jesus did what we could never do. He accomplished all that needed to be done for us to receive God's favor. Our job is to be humble and to put our faith in God's grace. But sometimes the storm blows and we get bullied by legalism, a friend or a preacher, or even our own conscience tells us that we should be doing something more, doing this or doing that. And we begin to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus. We add a few good works just to be on the safe side. But trying to be on the safe side can put us on the wrong side. When we lean toward legalism, we diminish the cross of Christ and we drift from God's grace. In essence, we throw away our freedom. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, thank You for this word from Paul. It's just not our human nature to believe that You have done everything and that we can't just do a little bit just so we can feel that we deserve it. But Lord, help us to humble ourselves that we can admit our total depravity before You. That there is nothing, Lord, that meets the standard that You have set because of who You are. And Lord, thank You that You walked between those that offering with, with uh, Abraham. Thank You that You came to earth in the body of Jesus and that You died for us. And that all we can do, Lord, is give ourselves to You to work in our hearts. Lord, help us give up those old thoughts of human nature and cling to the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thanks for being with me tonight.